Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tell Me Everything here on SiriusXM Progress. My name's Joe Sudbay. I'm going to be with you for the next few days. Guest hosting for John Fugelsang. Always enjoy this opportunity. Ten weeks from tonight, we will be on the verge of Election Day. Though by then, a lot of states will have early voting in action. But it is just 10 weeks away. And I have to tell you, over the weekend, I saw this headline in the Washington Post. Democrats see the once unthinkable, a narrow path to keeping the House. Now, it hasn't been unthinkable if you listen to SiriusXM Progress, because we've been saying this for quite a while now. This is not a regular year. This is not a regular election cycle. This is not historical. We have a former president who tried to steal the election, sent a mob to the Capitol to kill his vice president. That's not normal. There's no historical precedent for that. There's no historical precedent for the former president retaining top secret documents, classified documents and having to have the FBI go to his house to search for them. That's not historical. And it's not historical to have a former president completely dominating his party, which Donald Trump does. Still, it's a really good sign that it's not just us saying it anymore. The actual traditional media is picking it up. Now, it's still going to be complicated. You know, Republicans did okay in redistricting. No, not as well as they thought their gerrymandering has kind of reached a saturation point. And we've got some great candidates running around the country. Last week, we talked to a couple of them. Marie Glusenkamp Perez running in Washington's third district. Jevin Hodge in Arizona one. Those are pickup opportunities. There are a lot of Democratic pickup opportunities across the country. We have to defend what we have and Republicans are throwing everything they can at it. But we're in a place where Democrats are feeling a lot better. The Washington Post wrote, after months of gloomy predictions, and I'll just add as an aside, the gloomy predictions came from reporters at the Washington Post, New York Times, Cook Report. Those are the ones making the gloomy predictions. But after months of gloomy predictions, Democrats are investing anew in flipping Republican seats. They're also directing more money to protect a roster of their own endangered incumbents. A list party officials said noticeably shrank since the spring. That means, and I'm just going to add a little commentary here to this too, the number of incumbent Democrats who were worried about losing their seats, not as long as it used to be. That's really important. Picking up Republican health seats and holding the ones that are competitive, that are held by Democrats, That's the key to keeping the House. And I'd like to see them expand their margins. I'm greedy. Now, this is the rest of the Washington Post article. First, this paragraph. And they are trying to frame contests around abortion rights, putting Republicans on the defensive for strict opposition to the procedure in the wake of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. They're trying to frame the issue. Democrats are framing the issue because it's true. This is reality. This is what's happened. The Supreme Court, the Republican political hacks on the Supreme Court, three of them appointed by that same Republican president who tried to steal the election and who sent a mob to kill his vice president, took away the right women have to control their bodies. They think the government should do it. That's not Democrats are framing it that way. And of course, we all know the biggest example of this 
was last week in New York's 19th congressional district where Pat Ryan won a surprising win. None of the same pundits who have been saying all along that Republicans are going to keep the House expected that one to happen, threw them off. And we're just it's really interesting to see this change in conversation. Pat Ryan, who won that seat, was quoted in this article. And this is what he said. Showing a fighting spirit is absolutely critical. A lot of people rallied around just strong, clear, unequivocal positions on issues that in the past a lot of people would say you should be much more delicate or nuanced. I I was so happy to see that. I hope Democratic candidates around the country and Democratic incumbents see that. Show a fighting spirit. Be strong, clear, unequivocal on issues that matter to voters. That whole idea you should be more delicate or nuanced. There's an entire industry in Washington, D.C. of consultants who teach candidates to be more nuanced and delicate and say the right words and use the talking points. And it sounds like pablum. This is not a time for pablum. This is a time to own it. Own the issues that matter to voters own the right to abortion. That's what Pat Ryan did. His first ad, and we played it last week, he released it on June 24th, the very day the Republicans on the Supreme Court issued that ruling, taking away abortion rights. And it was about fighting for abortion. So this is good to see. Democrats are in the hunt to keep the Senate expand their margin in the Senate and actually possibly hold on to the House. And this is not what anyone was thinking six months ago. We heard it. We still hear it. There's still a lot of people who want to rely on conventional wisdom and want to rely on the past, past history. Oh, well, you know what happened in 2010. Oh, remember what happened in 2018. What about what happened in 2014? Doesn't matter. This is 2022. It's completely different party in power, the party that's controlling our lives, is not at the White House. It's the Republicans on the Supreme Court. They're the ones that have changed the status quo. They're the ones that we have to defeat. And people understand that. And at the same time, it has been incredibly important that Democrats on Capitol Hill and Joe Biden have been on a roll passing really important legislation. It's a perfect combination going into these final 10 weeks running on the accomplishments, what they're doing for the American people, lowering drug prices, addressing the climate crisis that is wreaking havoc on the world. Yeah, Democrats did that. Who said no every single step of the way? Republicans. And I'll tell you, when Biden was signing the Inflation Reduction Act and he called out Republicans, it gave me such joy. I was like, yeah, Joe. Do that. More of that. And then we saw that speech from him last week, last Thursday night. I came on the air. We were playing clips. This this guy was a fighter. That's exactly what we needed to see. Exactly what we needed to see. Inspire the base, Joe Biden, because the base needs to be motivated. So after that really amazing, fiery speech last week in Maryland, we got word today that The president's going to be traveling to Milwaukee and Pittsburgh next week on Labor Day. And he's going to be celebrating Labor Day and the dignity of American workers. I thought that's good. Good to see him out there. And as an aside, John Fetterman's going to be there in Pittsburgh, and he's going to encourage the president to lean in on legalization of marijuana, another wildly popular idea that has passed on the ballot in every red state it's been on the ballot in. So yes, Joe Biden listened to John Fetterman on that one. But then later in the day, we also got to notice that this Thursday night, September 1st, president is going to be in Philadelphia, and he's going to deliver a primetime speech. On the, and this is what the White House said on the continued battle for the soul of the nation. He's going to do it outside Independence Hall, right outside at the National Historical Park up there. And 
Biden officials have been telling the media that the president will talk about the progress we have made as a nation to protect our democracy, but how our rights and freedoms are still under attack. And he will make clear who is fighting for those rights, fighting for those freedoms, fighting for our democracy. And that is Joe Biden and the Democrats, because as we know, Republicans are fighting to take away our rights, fighting to take away our freedoms and fighting to take away our democracy. And there was no more vivid example of that over the weekend. I'm sure many of you have seen this clip from Lindsey Graham vowing violence, vowing violence if Trump is prosecuted. I saw it. I'm a little speechless right now. I shouldn't be. Nothing Republicans do surprises me. But let's play the clip of Lindsey Graham on Fox News last night. When it comes to Trump, uh, there is no law. It's all about getting him. There's a double standard when it comes to Trump. What happened with Hunter Biden is that the FBI weighed in to make sure a story didn't break for the 2020 election. We now have whistleblowers at the FBI telling Senator Grassley that they were told to slow down and back off Hunter Biden. And I'll say this. If there's a prosecution of Donald Trump for mishandling classified information after the Clinton debacle, which you presided over and did a hell of a good job, there'll be riots in the streets. Riots in the streets. And of course, brings up Hunter Biden because they're obsessed with Hunter Biden, refers to Hillary Clinton, which is, you know, there was no crime there. We are right now sorting out the damage to our national security because of what Trump has on hand at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, that's that's the place we're in right now. Now, you know, last week when Biden was on his role, he referred to the Republicans, the MAGA Republicans, as semi-fascist. I, I mean, I, w- I thought he was right. I wouldn't have used the word semi. I would have just said they're fascist. And of course, there was a lot of fretting in the media and a lot of tut-tutting and Why does Joe Biden say that? Joe Biden wants to be bringing people together. Why is he saying things like this? Well, they worry more about what Biden's saying than the fact that Republicans are engaging in fascism, right? At the White House today, Corinne Jean-Pierre was asked about what Biden's response is on this issue. Let's play the clip. I think it's really important and to whom she refers. Senator Lindsey Graham said last night there would be riots in the street if former President Trump is prosecuted for taking classified government documents to Mar-a-Lago. What is the White House response to that? So, um, we have, you know, we have seen MAGA Republicans attack our democracy. We have seen MAGA Republicans take away our rights, uh, make threats of violence. Uh, including this weekend. And that is uh, what the president was referring to uh, when you all asked me uh, last week about the semi-fascism comment. And he was clear, not all Republicans, there are some mainstream Republicans. He mentioned uh, Governor uh, of Maryland, Larry Hogan, uh, and talked about, uh, about him and what he's been doing and how he said, called him out of being that uh, mainstream Republican, but we have seen these MAGA extreme Republicans making these kind of comments, uh, which is uh, which is dangerous. It is dangerous. And Lindsey Graham is right in the thick of it and threatening violence. Donald Trump took documents right now. Our intelligence agencies are doing analyses to see What kind of damage has been done to our national security because of what exists at Mar-a-Lago and who might have had access to it? We do have a guest in just a few minutes, Beth Macy. She's a former reporter. She's an author. She wrote the book Dope Sick. She has a new book out right now called Raising Lazarus, and I am really looking forward to talking to her in just a few minutes. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. 
Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I am really, really quite honored that we're being joined right now by an author who I think has done more to raise the awareness of the opioid crisis in America than Beth Macy. Beth, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so glad you could join us. Just for our listeners, many of them are probably aware of your previous book, Dope Sick, which is now a Hulu series. You now have a new book, Raising Lazarus, which I'm reading. And I'm telling you, Beth, I feel like, first of all, you're an amazing writer. But it's like when I read Dope Sick, I had so many, oh, my God, oh, shit moments. And I'm already on just page 77. And I've already had that happen like 10 times reading this book. Um, let's start by just introduce yourself to our audience and some of your background and how you became went from a reporter to an author on this very subject sure so i i'm based in roanoke virginia which is a a region of about a quarter million people kind of small in the outskirts of appalachia and i was a local newspaper reporter in 2010 when what we then called the heroin epidemic broke out as um uh, kind of a, a nascent cell. It was an interesting story because it started out in the wealthy white suburbs. And I did this series and readers kind of spit their coffee up and they're like, what? Wealthy white people do heroin. And so several years later, after I had written my first two books, I was looking to go back to this topic because it was just getting worse. And that was the reporting that eventually led to the book. And that eventually led to the series. And then the new book is really about solutions because I was so bereft at the end of Dope Sick because, like, the main person I had been following had had been brutally murdered because of being medically abandoned. And uh, I just felt like the government's response and the healthcare system's response was so impotent that I needed to do more. And so at that point, I then set about to to try to find innovators in, in communities that were you know, going against the system and bringing life-saving treatments to folks. And there are so many heroes in your book that we run across. And one thing, I, I mean, I have to admit, I I grew up in Maine, right? And Maine is one of the places that had really been impacted by um, the opioid epidemic and, and, and addiction. And I was kind of unaware of it. I found a needle on the, I was in Maine in the summertime in Portland and I found a needle on the ground and I was freaked out. I called my sister and she wasn't, she was sort of blase about it. She said, oh, where'd you find it? I'll call the number. So I started asking around and realized just how extensive the problem was. Um, I read Sam Quinone's book, Dreamland. I read Dope Sick. And, I, and what, what made me realize, Beth, is just how for such a, an intense crisis that we're facing, and it's gotten worse during the pandemic, how few people really are aware of the magnitude of the issue. Um, yeah. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, so like back in the day when I first started reporting on it, hardly any families wanted to go on the record because they were so ashamed. You know, Richard Sackler, the head of Purdue, which kind of ignited this crisis back in 1996, by launching OxyContin and telling America that opioids were virtually non-addictive, uh, famously said that um, we should hammer the abusers. They are the the criminals. They are the culprits. And what that did was like put the stigma on the people that he himself had helped addict. 
and it made the stigma even worse. So that by the time I started reporting on this in 2010, folks were like sending their kids away to rehab, but they weren't telling their neighbors about it. So it was very unseen unless you dig just slightly below the surface. And of course, now we know that a fully a third of American families have been experiencing strife because of this. And you don't have to dig very far below, but unless you're looking for it, it's still kind of, nobody brings it up, right? Like I've noticed in my book signing lines with this book, people are much more likely to tell me the story of their their loved one than they were, say, in 2018. But, you know, it's still kind of a, a hard conversation. Right. Yeah, it's really it, that is it's it's interesting because as I as I read this book and your previous book, I used to work in the gun violence prevention issue and it, it felt like you had so many of the same conversations with people. Um, but it, when it was gun violence prevention, people were more willing to talk about it and look for solutions and, and go out and speak publicly. And that ha- that's not quite it's it does seem to be changing, but it's not quite the same yet in the um in, 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 in with the issue of um people uh suffering from this crisis so talk about raising lazarus because you said you were looking for solutions and one of the things is for this level of crisis there really isn't a con- it doesn't feel like there's a concerted government effort to address it and it's still so based on punishment um so talk a little bit yeah. about that yeah, so it, it, we're all, myself included, we have blind spots because we've all been inculcated in this drug war that began in the early 70s when we started, you know, punishing drug users uh, that in, inordinately affected uh, black and brown people. Um, it was really kind of a covert way to, to, to use racism as a cudgel. Um, even though white people were using drugs at a rate far greater than white people, black people tended to, you know, I tell the story of my son getting in trouble and having, you know, the social capital, the money to hire a lawyer, whereas the other people in the courtroom that day were, you know, people of color who were, you know, defended by public defenders and, um, you know, they got felonies, which really has a big impact on your life. And so because of the drug war and because of this mentality that people who use drugs are moral failures and criminals, we have sort of given a pass at the systems that should have been treating folks with addiction as people with a treatable medical condition. And, you know, if if we wanted to, as a nation, there's a lot of models elsewhere in the world, in Canada and in Western Europe, um, we could reduce our overdose deaths to practically zero. We really could, because the treatments are, are pretty good. Um, you know, there are some medication-assisted treatments, uh, buprenorphine and methadone, that have really high efficacy rates, but we're just simply not offering access to them, particularly to drug users who are who have been using for years and who have lost all their social capital. Many of them are living unhoused. You know, a lot of the women are resorting to sex work, and it's all being fueled by this outsized fear of becoming dope sick. And until we make the treatments easier to access than the dope, we're going to continue to see this problem soar. It's it's really such an important point. And what's really what has struck me um, from reading your books is, you know, it's a disease. It's an addiction and it requires medical intervention. It's the it, it, and yet there's this resistance or there has been a resistance to medically assisted treatment when you know, it's like the way you, you can use medicine to to cure it, and, and and there's a resistance to that. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, no. th- there's been a lot of resistance. The Talk about that. They're actually more efficacious than a lot of other medicines that we have, like approved by the FDA in the world, because um, they're pretty darn good. 
and a lot of medicines aren't, but there is this idea because addiction and mental health were sort of siloed as the step brothers of our healthcare system that um, a lot of it has been colored by abstinence-only treatments and AA and NA models, which historically viewed taking maintenance medicines or medicines for opioid use disorder as um, just treating a drug addiction with another drug, and it wasn't really being, quote, clean, you know. And so, like, in DopeSec, I follow this young woman, Tess Henry, who is, like, so stigmatized when she goes to an NA meeting, which is a condition of her being on buprenorphine. She has to get her little paper signed, but nobody wants to sponsor her at the meeting because they consider her, quote, unclean and like she's cheating. But no, this is her medicine, just like a diabetic would take insulin. It, it just the, the stigma keeps coming up and coming up and coming up. So in Raising Lazarus, which is your new book, um, you really meet people who are on the front lines. I mean, in ways that so many of us could never imagine trying to help people who are dealing with their um, substance use disorders. Uh, talk about some of the people you've met, because they're just like yeah. heroes. Yeah, like I didn't really think I wanted to write about this again because it was so dark at the end of Dope Sick, right? When Tess dies and like just had had witnessed medical abandonment over and over and over. And then as I went around talking about uh, Dope Sick, I started to see these innovations. They were outliers for sure, but they were definitely happening and including in some pretty unexpected places like Appalachia, which you would expect to have, you know, more conservative, uh, more um, just resistance to innovative programs. But I followed these this group of harm reductionists in Hickory, North Carolina, which is, a you know, kind of a dying furniture area. And uh, I found these two women that were running this harm reduction group called Olive Branch Ministry. And um, they started out passing out clean needles in 2009 before it was legal in the state. And they would pose as a food pantry. Um, passing out uh, needles kind of tucked inside granola bar boxes uh, with with their business card that said Olive Branch Ministry and the phone number so that, that if a relative found it, they would go, oh, how nice, they're going to church. And so they built up this um, harm reduction program, which is the idea of treating people in use and uh, knowing that when they're ready, because we know that people that go to needle exchanges are five times more likely to eventually enter treatment, they're there to triage them to whatever treatment they choose. Um, but when I first met them a few years back, their goal was to start offering low barrier Spoxin or buprenorphine. And they had this uh, nurse practitioner who at night, as a volunteer, was willing to go out to homeless encampments under the bridges, McDonald's parking lots, et cetera, to literally meet people where they were, including people who didn't have cars, who didn't have homes. And so the book begins with, with this guy, Tim, meeting a new patient named Sam in a McDonald's parking lot. And Sam knows he's going to die if he doesn't get off the needle. And Tim says, well, let, let's get you some help. And he's going to call in a low barrier uh, 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 discount bu buprenorphine prescription the next morning, but he wants t uh, Sam to know two things before they leave the parking lot. And one is you can get better. Most Americans think they can't, and including Sam. He thought he couldn't because he'd never been offered treatment um, it, in that way. And um, two, just don't disappear. And that, that meant that if Sam returned to use, and this is really a key component of a harm reduction, that, that Tim wouldn't just kick him out. He would increase his treatment. He would wrap services around him. And if he couldn't make it to the appointment next week, he, Sam could text him and he would, he would come to him. And so, the, so we know that most of the people dying from OUD are in this population of folks that say they don't want, they don't think they can get clean, they don't want to get clean. And it's basically because they've been so stigmatized and cast aside by the medical system 
that they don't know how to start. And by reaching out to them, um, whether it be with clean needles and safe use supplies or just like low barrier treatment when they're ready or, or treating their hepatitis C, it really is like this idea of harm reduction is a gateway to the medication-assisted treatment, which is a gateway to recovery and wellness. It's just a couple of steps removed, and the American public <laughs> uh, isn't that used to nuance and, and thinking that way. And, and again, because we've all been brought up with this drug war mentality that drug use is bad, you know, we're just ignoring the science and the efficacy around this approach, which, which actually does work. Well, it, there, there's so much wrapped up in this. Um, actually, my friend Kathleen Friedel wrote a book called About the Drug Wars, and her premise was the federal government's addicted to the war on drugs and needs an intervention. And for, <laughs> for, for so long, the drug war has been treated um, like uh, a criminal justice issue. And look, I mean... Joe Biden was part of that back in the 90s when he was doing the crime bill and when he was on the Judiciary Committee. A lot Democrat and Republican, Democratic and Republican presidents have had that perspective. Um, And it it hasn't been dealt with as a medical issue. And it's kind of like the clash of the worst of our criminal justice system and the worst of our um, our just messed up medical system. Um, and, 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 And hundreds of thousands of people are caught. And I mean, like over 100,000 people died last year from OUDs. And that's a pretty serious problem. Yeah. And every time they tally it up, like two months later, the number goes up, you know. Yeah. So and it's predicted to double by 2030, which is not that far away. We'll be at two million deaths. So uh, fully a third of American families are impacted by this. And you know, if you think you're insulated because you're wealthy or because you're educated, you're not. It's just, I feel like it's a matter of time. Everybody knows someone now. And that's why I'd really like Congress and our leaders to step up and have some courage. We know what works. We know that buprenorphine in the emergency rooms works. Only 8% of doctors have bothered to become wavered to prescribe this life-saving medication. There's a special waiver called the X waiver they all have to do. President Biden should X the X waiver. And this is actually um, a bill right now called the MAT Act is in the Senate right now. And that's something people could do right now is they could call their senators and say, we need to get the MAT Act across the line. Um, You know, we need to increase harm reduction because we know that works to eventually help get people into treatment when nothing else does. It, it, it's just so important. And, and our elected officials do have a role. And of course, we're seeing a politicization of it. And this year, we're, you know, if you watch a lot of ads right now, particularly Republican ads, they're all about fentanyl and how Joe Biden's letting migrants bring fentanyl into the country as if it's that simple, which, of course, it's not. It's a much more complicated issue. And you're dealing with much more sophisticated operators. Um, so, OK, you've written uh, these books and I, I can understand why it would be hard to have delved into this one. What gives you hope, Beth Macy? What gives you hope? <laughs> That's a great question. Well, the people doing this work give me hope because they're so selfless. Many of them are working at the absolute ragged edge of capacity right now. Um, Many of the people best poised to help folks in at the height of chaotic use are themselves in recovery. And it's, you know, it's it's a sad irony that the people who are best poised to help are also the most likely to relapse themselves just because of the stress of this work. And so they really need help. We have a treatment gap of 87% in America. That means that only 13% in the past year of folks with OUD have, have managed to access treatment. I mean, that's like a big old F, you know, 13%, you'd be kicked out of school with 13%. And, um, So we really need to make sure that the money that's beginning to come down from the opioid settlements goes to programs that are are not abstinence-based, that are not drug war 
oriented and, you know, incarceration first models. We need to get help to these people. Many of them were initially addicted through no fault of their own, but because because the government allowed the the regulatory bodies to be co-opted by big pharma. So, you know, there's such a role for government to play to, you know, as you, you mentioned, Joe Biden, when he was a senator, championing drug war laws, like there's a role for him to play, especially with his son suffering from SUD, to really make amends for what they allowed to happen. Just really um, great work. Um, Raising Lazarus, a, a really great book. Hope, Justice and the Future of America's Overdose Crisis. Beth Macy on Twitter at papergirl. What is it? Paper Girl Macy. I was going to say Paper Girl Beth, but it's Paper Girl Macy. Thank you so much for talking to us tonight. And really, thank you for just informing the nation of a, Aww, a problem that so we need to address. Of you. Yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate you joining us. Uh, we're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a few minutes. We have talked so many times on this show, on this channel, about the fact that democracy is on the ballot this November in states across the country. And the jobs across the country that are so critical to administering our elections and keeping them safe and secure are secretaries of state. And one of the most competitive, one of the most important because literally it is a ballot fight for democracy is happening in Nevada. And I am so excited right now to be joined by the Democratic candidate for Secretary of State in Nevada, Cisco Aguilar. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm, I'm so glad. I mean, uh, like everyone, we're all obsessed with the elections, right? And we're all obsessed <laughs> with saving our democracy. You are on the very front lines. You are one of the people who's going to do it for us. Introduce yourself to our SiriusXM progress. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me on the show. Look, it's an honor to run for this position, especially at this time in Nevada. This is a very serious race. It has major consequences, not just for this election, but the 24 presidential elections and the next election for the next decade. And if we don't get this right as Nevadans, we're going to be in trouble. But I have confidence, I have faith in our citizens here that we're going to make the right decision and elect somebody who's going to be responsible, who's going to be trustworthy, who's going to be there to fight for all Nevadans. But uh, going back to, I'm an attorney. I've been working the last 14 years for Andre Agassi and Stephanie Graff, which has been an amazing experience, super lucky. They're amazing individuals. But also, too, in that time, I served as chairman of the Nevada Athletic Commission, which is one of the most critical appointed positions of the state because it oversees UFC, it oversees boxing, and the amount of revenue that goes through our economy on those events is critical. And you've got to have somebody who understands what it really means to be a regulator. And having that opportunity to serve as a regulator is a great segue into the Secretary of State's race in Nevada because the Secretary of State has two main responsibilities. One is you are a regulator of elections. You are there to enforce the rules. You're there to make sure the elections are fair, they're transparent, open, but also to your administrator of corporate filing, and which is a huge, huge impact on our small businesses here in Nevada. About 99% of our businesses are small businesses, and those are the individuals that are working every day in our communities. They're employing our neighbors, they're employing our community members, and they're building opportunities for growth in the state. And this is, yours is a state that obviously small business and big business are important, and that's critical. But yours is a state, too, that really has a commitment to voting um, and has really expanded the opportunities for voting, which is not appreciated on the other side. Talk a little bit about that, because I think, you know, a lot of states would aspire to have the kind of laws that Nevada has right now. Yeah, you know, that, that great kudos to our legislature and our governor for really recognizing what Nevada could do to increase democracy. You know, it goes back to Nevada and who we are. We're a gritty state. We're a small state. We're forceful. We're always fighting for legitimacy, but I think we're there. We've made it. And so we need to ensure that we increase that access to the polls. We have a 24-7 economy. 
We have workers working 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. on a daily basis or working multiple jobs. And if you ask them to go vote on the first Tuesday of November between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., that's impossible for some of our working families. And we are a working family state. And so that access, you know, increasing early access, early voting, uh, making sure every citizen in Nevada receives a mail paper ballot. It's making sure that they have same-day voter registration for those that need to re-register or want to register for the first time and participate in their opportunity to cast the ballot. Because every fundamental right, every freedom we experience as Nevada goes through the ballot box. It's that fundamental right to a public education. It's that fundamental right for a woman to choose her own health care. It's all the other fundamental rights that we take advantage of. It's talk about home ownership. It's talk about building your your small business. All of this goes through the ballot box and ensuring that our worker families have access and the opportunity to participate and have their voice heard is critical. And we know in Nevada in 2016, which wasn't a great year, uh, nationally for Democrats, um, Hillary Clinton won your state. Uh, Catherine Cortez Masto won, took control. Uh, Democrats took control of the state house and the state Senate, really critically important, and have done amazing things, which is, of course, why Republicans want to undo all of that work. And I don't want to spend a ton of a time, a ton of time talking about your opponent, but we have to talk about your opponent because Jesus Absolutely. Christ. I mean, like on the scale of people who are out there, he's really <laughs> are far out there. Jim Martin is his name. He literally would. He's an election denier. Uh, have at it. He's more than an election denier. He's just bad news for Nevada. That's the bottom line. The guy, it's fascinating to understand the perspective he has. I don't think he truly understands the role of the secretary of state in our state. Look, you know, I don't think he's a very serious candidate. But he's a, his beliefs and his views have very serious consequences in our state. And we need to take that seriously. And I like to say constantly is, you know, strong leaders inspire, weak leaders create fear. And he's using fear as a tactic to win this election. But I don't think Nevadans are going to buy it. Nevadans want to know somebody that's going to drive forward, is going to think about things differently and make our lives better. And he's not willing to do that. He wants us to take us backwards. He wants to get rid of early voting, which is so critical to so many of our working families. And taking backwards, I mean, this is a guy who literally stood with fake electors. I mean, beyond election denier, like you said, this is the kind of person who, if if he were to win, we could not rely on Nevada's electoral votes in 2024. We just couldn't. It, it, it's that serious. And, you know, it seems so hyperbolic, you know, but it's not hyperbole. They are telling us who they are and what they'll do. And he is really unabashed about letting everybody know his views on this. Right. And for example, you know, we have 17 counties in Nevada. Um, one of our 17 counties, Nye County, recently bought into what he was selling. They determined that for the next election, they want to use paper ballots and they want to count those paper ballots by hand. Talk about the lack of efficiency, the lack of security, the inability to really have transparency in that process is unfortunate because all those 31 vote, 31,000 voters in Nye County are being sold a bill of goods that is wrong. And I think if you asked every citizen in that county what their priorities were from a fiscal standpoint, the cost to do paper ballots, the cost to count them by hand, when we have very strong, secure systems already working in Nevada. We have a current Republican Secretary of State. She's continually said that our elections are fair and secure. She's investigated every issue that's been brought before her. The courts have addressed this multiple times. So our systems are working. But they choose not to sell that idea and choose to perpetrate false information. And that's unfortunate because it's going to end up costing the citizens of Nye County fiscal resources that could be used on public education, could be used on roads, could be used on health care and just building a community. It, like every aspect of what they're doing here, it, it, it undermines our democracy. But as you're pointing out, it also undermines the community, under, undermines the services that could be available to residents of that county. So, Cisco, you're out there, you're campaigning. What are you hearing from voters? Like, uh, do, the, do voters get the threat to democracy? 
Yes, they understand it. You know, you talk to voters here in Nevada, you, they care about a few things. One is the education of our kids, right? Especially coming out of the pandemic. They want to make sure their children are being educated, especially in our Latino communities and our communities color. They want to know that those kids are getting a quality education. They care about their jobs. They want to make sure that they can depend on these jobs to be able to put food on their table. They care about the health care of their family members, but they also care about protecting that right to vote and getting to the polls and being able to feel as though they have a voice. So it is an issue. It is becoming an issue. We're just trying to educate people to understand it because you look at his supporters, they're going to come out 100%, but it's critical. We bring out the others and just as much of a strong force to ensure we win this election. And so that's what we're focusing on is really understanding what are the issues. It goes back to kitchen table issues. What are families talking about when they're sitting down for dinner, when they're talking to their neighbors, and when they're walking down the street? And that's what we want to focus on rather than these other issues or these red herrings about unsecure elections. It's just a red herring to deviate from what we really need to do as a state. And what really scares me is a 24 election. If this guy wins, Nevada is going to probably determine who the next president is. And if we don't get it right here in Nevada, we could have an impact throughout the country. And that's not an impact we want to have. We want to know that when we send our electoral college votes up for president, we know they're the right votes and we're going to get the right individual elected president. I really am so glad you could join us tonight. Um, Cisco, for CiscoNV.com, really important. Cisco for Nevada on Twitter. This is an important race for Nevada, but like we said, it's an important race for the country. Keep up the great work. Keep in touch with us. Let us know how it's going. Absolutely. Um, and really Please appreciate call me anytime you. you need somebody. I'm happy to be on. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's great to talk to you, Cisco. Good luck with everything. This is Joe Sudbury. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Welcome back to Tell Me Everything here on SiriusXM Progress. For the past 24 days, well, actually, 24 days, members of United Farm Workers undertook a march that was over 330 miles. They were marching to Sacramento to fight for their union rights, to influence Governor Gavin Newsom. And joining us to talk about it what the march was about, and where we are. I'm really excited to be joined by Elizabeth Strader, who's the Director of Strategic Campaigns for in the United Farm Workers. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm pleased to be here. Well, I'm really glad you could join us. Um, at the top of the hour, I told everyone, you know, if you ate today, but if you ate fruits or vegetables, there's a good chance something you ate came through the hands of a member of the United Farm Workers. So before we dig into it, for people who don't know who UFW is, tell everyone who the members of your union are. Sure. So the United Farm Workers is the uh, the oldest and, and most influential uh, labor union for farm workers. Uh, it was founded in California with the merging of a couple of groups in the 60s. Um, certainly, if you've passed a school or a street named after Cesar Chavez or Dolores Huerta or Larry Eatleyong, you're talking about some of the co-founders of that movement. And, uh, you know, so that, that takes us to today. Uh, we, we certainly have been reflecting on our history and on our uh, and on our future these last few weeks. So your members undertook a march and it wasn't like in the middle of the summer. Mm hmm. In the middle of California, which it's a little hot there this right. time of year, 335 miles, 24 days to Sacramento, the state capital, to push Governor Newsom. Tell us why. Sure. So we were on, we were calling it the March for the Governor's Signature. We called it that because that's what it was. Um, we were marching for, uh, you know, to, to gain the support of Governor Newsom on a piece of legislation called AB 2183, which as of today uh, has been uh, passed by the California legislature and is sent to his desk for signature. And? Well, that bill, 
A uh, very similar piece of legislation was passed by the California legislature last year, although it was vetoed on the first day of our march. Um, but this is a bill intending to, uh, you know, when this bill becomes law, it will give farm workers more choices in how they vote in their union elections. It'll give them choices that will be protected from retaliation or deportation, which is probably one of the most um, feared types of retaliation that farm workers face uh, when they're organizing their unions in California. Yeah, talk a little bit about that, because I, I think it's something that um, it's not unique to your union, but it's especially relevant to your union. Um, dig into that a little bit for us. A little yeah, bit. I think even a lot of folks that are uh, that are pretty um, engaged with the labor movement are sometimes surprised to, to, to understand sort of what the odds are when it comes to farm worker organizing. Uh, so when our sort of the two big basic labor law frames in the country, the big federal labor laws that frame our, our labor laws as we know it now, when they were passed in the 1930s, the Fair Labor Standards Act, that's going to be things like minimum wage, child labor, overtime, and the um, uh, and the National Labor Relations Act, which, you know, gives folks the uh, protected right to take, you know, collective action, whether that be formally unionizing or to take direct action in, a co you know, in a collective way. Uh, both of those laws at that time when they were written in the Jim Crow era, they excluded farm workers because, quite frankly, the, you know, a, a Southern Congress person wasn't going to pass through labor protections for something that for labor that they traditionally associate with slavery. So that's going to be farm workers and domestic workers. Well, those exclusions sort of carved out in the 1930s. They persisted today in California in the 1970s. Um, there was established an Agricultural Labor Relations Act which means that there's Agricultural Labor Relations Board, an ALRB, um, that oversees union elections and uh, you know fair labor practices and things like that for farm workers. So while it's an exclusive thing to California, um, in terms of the ALRA and the ALRB, there are some similar models that are, um, you know, other states are gonna kind of give it a try. But because this law was written in the 1970s, it's, you know, it needs some, some updating, like many of our laws that are written in the 1970s, to reflect the realities of farm workers and what they're experiencing. And in California and in the U.S. in general, more than half, uh, best estimates, more than half of uh, farm workers that are doing farm labor in the United States are undocumented immigrants. In California, it's a strong majority. You know, at least 70 percent of farm workers in California are undocumented. So these are people that are living in super they're just really in the shadows. There, there are people without the social safety net uh, and living outside of the the legal framework that other workers take for granted. And also, you know, their place in the community is a little more tenuous and they're a little more easily exploited than any other kind of worker. It's really important. And it's 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 um, one of the things, you know, I think if the pandemic taught us anything and I wonder if the pandemic taught us anything. It's how vital the men and women who do the work in the fields, your members, are to our country and keeping us fed. Mm -hmm. And it really, I mean, when you talk about essential workers, farm workers, it's like they should be in a category of their own. Yeah. Yeah. And because the United States does have such a, you know, the vast majority of the food, the produce that we eat is grown in, inside the United States. About 80 percent of our food is domestically grown, which is why when you had some of these supply issues where we couldn't uh, fill certain types of um, goods that are frequently imported or are at least partially processed and manufactured abroad, uh, you, you still, we did not see a carrot shortage. We did not see a citrus fruit shortage. And that's because that, that food is coming from inside the United States. And a huge, you know, the, the, the agriculture leader in the United States is California. So this, is a, this, this could have a huge impact on the quality of life for the people that are doing the labor that is, at, its, at the end of the day, is the most essential. I mean, certainly a doctor is essential, but how many times did you see a doctor today? The food that you eat. I mean, I, I didn't see any doctors today, but I ate several times. So yeah, it, it really it, it really cuts down to some some real moral referendums on how this country is is treating the people that are feeding us. So 
What's the stat? So we, the governor has vetoed a bill already, which, I mean, Gavin Newsom, who we see a lot. He's on TV talking about Democratic values and he's running TV ads in Florida calling out Ron DeSantis for, you know, violating Democratic values. <laughs> What's going on with with Gavin Newsom here? Well, he vetoed it last year. His veto message was was pretty um, you know, it was focused on administrative procedures. We reintroduced this year with more co-authors and um, and we have put onto his desk a framework that addresses 100% of the issues that he raised within his veto. Um, and in addition, we compromised further and added a sunset clause, which means that we have five years to figure out if this law is going to work or not um, and five years to improve upon it. So there isn't even a huge, you know, fear of, of locking in a law that would have to be repealed if he finds that it doesn't work. He has five years to work with us. Uh, on the final day of the march, a mile before the end, um, we were reading, uh, we, we read in, in the Fresno Bee, actually, newspaper, a piece that said that he, in its current form, he doesn't think that he can sign it. And you've probably heard the phrase, is coined by Dolores Huerta, one of the co-founders of the United Farm Workers Brotherhood, si se puede, or yes, we can. Yes, it's possible. And so he says, I can't sign it. Well, yes, he can. Si se puede. And that was really as the attitude that we were having as we stepped out into that final uh, mile of the march with, you know, some 6,000 people behind us and Dolores Huerta who joined us for that, uh, that final mile. She's 92 years old now. Um, just to really send a really strong message of, yeah, you know, si se puede. You can sign it. Yeah. So it's, it's now that, passed it's, through the assembly, um, the amendments, and you know, it passed through the Senate with amendments, and then it was sent back to the uh, to the assembly this morning or this afternoon for a concurrence vote. So it has now passed both houses of the legislature with even broader support than it had last year, and it's uh, sitting on his desk, waiting for him to make good choices. Si se puede, uh, <laughs> Governor Newsom, um, you. Uh, and, and first of all, everyone should be following UFW updates on Twitter, in part because the news, you know, really great updates. And you're having vigils right now in uh, Sacramento, San Francisco, Los Angeles and Fresno um, to urge the governor to sign the bill. But also just the the day to day. And I, I find your uh regular updates with people working in the fields, explaining the work they do. It is amazingly hard work and they do it. And I think the way you all document it is so critical for the rest of us to understand what's at stake. And so now, of course, the, um, the Twitter uh, feed is a lot about what's happening with this legislation. But really, you and your colleagues do such a great job of really trying to explain the work to the American people. And that just seems so vital um, to building support. Uh, uh, Elizabeth, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, our goal, the vast majority of the content in regular times, certainly during the final stretches of the march, we're talking an awful lot about the march. Um, but on a day to day basis, whether you're you know, the, on Facebook, uh, Twitter or Instagram, our at handle on Twitter and Instagram is both at UFW updates. On uh, Facebook, you'll find us just United Farm Workers. But what you'll find on those feeds every day, you will see the work site, the face, hear the name, and see the actual work that is being produced. You know that that produces the food that's in your kitchen. So, in a time where, you know, there's a lot of people that think that they know their blood type means they should eat certain types of food and that'll make them the most nutritious, and they have this intimate relationship with food in some ways. But in the other way, you know, on the other hand, they are totally removed from their food to the extent that they wouldn't recognize what a Brussels sprout looks like when it's uh, when it's growing, let alone what it takes to harvest it. And so that's the goal of our social media feed for the most part is to make sure that every single day a consumer can log on and see what it takes, really humanize that labor that puts food on your table every day. Because it's remarkably skilled. It's, it's, it's fascinating work. It's fascinating to watch it. It's very, uh, some people talk about how satisfying it is to watch a hand harvest. 
of, of a row of radishes and, and just how nimble and how skilled the work is. But you can also see how grueling it is. And we often talk about piece rates, which is many farm workers are not paid hourly. They're paid by the piece rate, which means they might be paid $30 for a four foot by four foot by four foot bin of citrus fruit, you know, half a ton of citrus. And they're paid $30 to harvest that or they're paid by the bucket or they're paid by the, you know, by the row. So looking at that, talking it, it, to us, it's kind of a moral math. We're doing a moral math question. It's 106 degrees. He's making 75 cents per five gallon bucket of turnips that he's hand harvested. What's the moral math on this? And it's, it's, it's just I, I feel like consumers need to do better at uh, at, at seeing the, the really uh, skilled and, and grueling and undervalued work that goes under their, you know, into their recipes and onto the plate. I think. You know, it's incumbent upon us as Democrats and progressives to push our leaders to do better and to deliver. And, you know, the United Farm Workers shouldn't have to march 335 miles in the summer heat to get Governor Newsom to do the right thing. And I really hope Governor Newsom will do the right thing. The legislature, the Democratic controlled legislature is supporting it. As you said, you've picked up support and we have to put pressure on on our elected officials. And it's it is one thing that we can do. Republicans don't. Republicans don't ever get that. You know, they march in lockstep. We march to make our leaders do better. Um, And that's really the great work that you and your colleagues do at um, United Farm Workers, Elizabeth Strader. Um, UFW updates on Twitter. Uh, follow it, you guys, because you will like you'll be inspired and you'll be in awe. Stratterize. That's such a great you have such a great um, Twitter handle. I've always liked it. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so much for talking to us tonight. Keep us posted. We'll keep an eye out to see what the governor does and hopefully thank he'll do so the much. right thing. Thanks for joining us.